0: Let's pray together. Father, you are wonderful and merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you, in your infinite wisdom and unfathomable, Mercy looked upon a world of weak, small sinners and sent your greatest treasure, your Son, to us to show mercy to us, to forgive us, that we might follow him and we might know you forever. And as he went to the cross and emptied the grave and ascended to your right hand, you sent your spirit as a seal. On us, that you might, we might know that you're always with us and we are very prone to forget. And so I pray today, as we have the wonderful privilege of looking and entering into a passage of your sweet scriptures that shows your son in such merciful glory and highlights his heart in such a wonderful way, I pray that we would. See again that as he opens the eyes of the blind men, he might open the eyes of our hearts, as Paul prays in Ephesians 1, that we might see again the riches that we have in your Son, the riches that we have as sons and daughters of you, that we can call you not just God, but Father. And I pray that it would again change us forever. That the gospel might not just be a message we know, but a reality that we enter into, that we live in. And I pray, Lord, as there might be people in this room who have never trusted in your Son, who have never really looked to him for mercy, that they might have their eyes opened for the first time today as they see Jesus, the infinite King, stopping to look upon blind beggars, that they might see him looking upon their soul and opening their eyes for the first time So we pray as we always pray that this would not be a simple Sunday exercise that we do because we're Christians or we're in the Bible Belt and it's culturally acceptable or whatever the case may be, but that sitting under the Word of the living God that upholds the universe, that our hearts would be changed by your Spirit moving, that perhaps pride that has gone unseen in our hearts. For decades would be uprooted this morning and would be replaced with humility, or eyes that have been cast down listening to the lies of the serpent, believing false things about who you are, believing that you're a begrudging savior, that your son loves us sure but doesn't like us, all the lies that the enemy tells us about who you are, about your character that he's been whispering in the ears. Since Genesis 3, I pray that those would be silenced and that our eyes would be lifted up to see the actual sweetness of your Savior, the sweetness of your Son. I pray that you would work miracles in this room through the proclamation of your wonderful, eternal word this morning. I pray that in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, every time I have gone to Europe one of the things that I get most excited about is a very, I get excited about a couple of things, but one of the most excited things I, I get is something that's very normal if you're a European, which is taking the train. Whenever we rebelled in the 1700s, we were like, trains, no. Tea, no thanks, we'll have coffee. Trains, no thanks, we'll drive everywhere and have no public transportation whatsoever, right? But the Europeans were like, we like this. And I love it when I go over there. And I love particularly sitting and just looking at the landscape, Right? Everything in, in Europe is older than our country, so I, I love history, so that's one thing. I just love watching it go by. And then just watching, you know, my wife's from Norway, so you can see just Norway's beautiful everywhere you go. And so just watching the beauty go by. But one of the things that always pops into my head when I'm on a train in Europe is, you know, when you stop looking at the window, you look back inside the train car, there's those little red buttons that have a little plastic cover over them It says emergency stop. And I always wonder what would happen if I just, you know, flick this thing open and press the button? Because in the movies, there's always like a fight going on and the person's getting beat up and they hit the emergency stop and then it stops automatically and it, everyone gets way more injured. And I'm like, is that really how it works in real life? Are we just trusting all these normal people not to flick open this little plastic thing and hit this emergency stop button? Maybe, I imagine it just like makes a light go on in the captain's booth or whatever. But I always wonder what would happen if you press it and. I, the many times I've been on European trains for, I've never seen anyone press it. And I imagine people don't press it unless there's a like crazy emergency, maybe like a movie scene. People are fighting or whatever in the train car. Because I imagine it just would be ridiculous to say emergency stop. Like if I was like, I like this landscape, emergency stop, I want to look at it a little bit longer. No one would press those buttons unless it's a huge deal because the train's got to keep going. We started at point A, we've got to get to point B. And we understand that just intuitively on just normal trains, right? Just traveling from Oslo to Bergen or wherever you're going in Europe. Now, we've seen in Matthew ever since chapter 16, when Peter said the incredible words that we've been building up to, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We talked about how that started a train moving from point A Point B, point B being Jerusalem. Jesus is no longer going to be doing his ministry around Galilee, no longer just strolling into different cities and healing the sick, no longer just going to be preaching on the hillside as his fame grows. Jesus now is beginning the mission of missions. He's going to Jerusalem, and as he goes closer to Jerusalem, he's getting closer and closer and closer to the cross. We've been looking at that for several years months, Jesus getting closer and closer and closer and more time with the disciples and teaching them because he's going to the cross. What does it mean to be a disciple? He's been teaching them about marriage, about sin, about temptation. Last week we saw him teach the very, very important lesson of if you want to be great in this kingdom, you must become a servant. And as we're getting closer and closer and closer and closer, we're one story away We're one paragraph away from Jerusalem. We'll get there next week at the great triumphal entry. But before we do, we're going to see Jesus hit the emergency brake button. We're going to see Jesus hit that little red button. And so the question we're going to really examine is why? And the answer is to show mercy. So, we'll look at three things as we examine this mercy. How do you receive mercy? Who is it that is giving us mercy? And how should we respond to mercy? How do you receive mercy? Who gives mercy? And how do we respond to mercy? So, let us look at the first one. How do we receive mercy? Look at verse 29. And as they, Jesus and his disciples. Remember the last scene, Jesus has just talked to James and John's mom. Right? They got their mom to come say, Hey, can my boys sit on your right and on your left, right? as all good men do? Get your mommy to come ask Jesus the hard questions for you. And that didn't go well for them. It made the other ten disciples pretty upset. Jesus had to teach them a lesson about how to have highly exalted status in the kingdom. We saw that scene, and now we're moving forward closer and closer to Jerusalem. Verse 29. As they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed them. Okay, So they're going through Jericho... Trains picking up steam, heading towards Jerusalem, and a great crowd is following them. So one of the things that uh, Jesus has been in Galilee, we've seen this, Jesus has been in Galilee doing ministry the whole time. And now to go to Jerusalem, you have to take about a 75-mile journey to Jerusalem, from Galilee down to Jerusalem. And Jericho is the last city before you get to Jerusalem, okay? So Jericho is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, so Jesus is... On his way, but there's something else happening in this passage. We're getting close to Passover. We're getting p- close to the most important celebration in the Jewish calendar. And so, what would happen every Passover is there would be massive pilgrimages from all over Israel to Jerusalem to get to the temple. Okay, so Jesus is on his journey to Jerusalem, but also as we're getting near and near to Passover, which we'll see happens in the next few chapters. There's also massive pilgrims who are coming as well into Jerusalem. And so as pilgrims are coming to Jerusalem, they're seeing Jesus. Remember, his fame has gone absolutely everywhere. And as they're seeing him, they're joining his crowd. So we haven't seen crowds in quite some time. Again, after Peter's great confession, Jesus kind of went away from the crowds and was spending a lot of time with the disciples. And now the crowds are coming back as he's journeying close to Jerusalem, as the train is going to Jerusalem, more and more people are following him. In fact, this is almost certainly just a massive crowd. Now, there's several things that we see in the gospel that when you just see it over and over again, it almost becomes white noise, and I think this is one of them, to just see uh, Jesus went somewhere and a big crowd followed him, and we're like, cool, he's famous, right? That's where we, and when we move on mentally, but, but slow down here. You've all seen videos or pictures or whatever of like a celebrity going to dinner, and just being mobbed by hundreds of people and it just looks so miserable and hopefully they've got some security guards to push some people back, right? That's just like, if you're a fan of somebody, they think this guy's the Messiah. They think this guy's gonna overthrow Rome. They're political oppressors. When people see Jesus, they just don't want a selfie. That's their savior. That's the one who's gonna make all their problems go away. They are following him to what they think is worldly victory. So as he's going, this crowd is following, and they know what it means for him to go to Jerusalem. Right? They think that's the destination of Rome being overthrown. That's the scene that we have. Jesus being followed by this massive crowd. And then we have verse 30. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Now, we've talked about it. every time you see that word, behold, that's the key word. That's Matthew saying to you, the author Matthew saying to you, look, here's what I want your eyes on. As there's this big, massive crowd following Jesus as they journey closer and closer to Jerusalem, I want your eyes in a somewhat unlikely place. I don't want your eyes on the big crowd that seems to be growing with every step that Jesus takes. I want your eyes... On the lowest of the low, blind beggars by the roadside. Matthew is drawing our eyes to the unimportant and to the overlooked. Not the massive crowd, some blind men by the roadside. And again, as the crowd is white noise, take a moment, sick people around Jesus often becomes white noise too. Leper, he's going to heal him. Next, Jesus can heal people, right? That's just kind of how we move through the Gospels. But again, take a moment here. You have two blind men on the roadside. Their constant reality is blindness. No beauty that they take in every day as they open their eyes and look at the blue sky or look at the veins on a leaf, never seeing the ripples in a pool as a stone is tossed in, never seen the smile of a child. You've seen those videos of like the colorblind people when they put on those special glasses and it's like barely get halfway in their eyes and then they just weep and then you weep and you're like, oh, that's for color. These men have never seen a shape. And on top of that, they, they have no means of making a living Mark explicitly. Matthew doesn't tell us they're beggars. Mark explicitly tells us they're, they're beggars. That's all they can do is put their hand out in hopes that people who are passing by might drop some money in so that they can get some food. That's their constant reality, and that's who Matthew has drawn our eyes to, two blind men sitting on a dirty road begging as they just hear the noise around them begin to increase. And it just seems like chaos And louder and louder, and they're probably getting stepped over or stepped on. And verse 30 tells us that they happen to hear Jesus is passing by. Now, they apparently know who Jesus is. They're going to call out to him in a little bit. But think about it. They're in Jericho. Jesus' fame has gone everywhere. But what do these men, what do these blind men in Jericho heard? There's a healer. There's a Messiah in Galilee. He's healing people 50 miles away, and you'll never get to him. They don't have any friends to take them on a mat to Jesus and open up a roof to lower them in and say, heal these blind men. They've heard of Jesus' great reputation, but he's far away, and he's staying up in Galilee for around three years, so all they have is hearing of his fame. That's great. He's up there, but we're down here in Jericho. Now, all of a sudden, they hear the noise increasing, and they hear he's here. The one who can heal us is in our city. In fact, he's walking right by us. This opportunity to encounter Jesus they thought they would never get is finally here for them. And what do they do? They can't push their way to him. Again, they're blind. No one is here to help them. We'll see the crowd's response to them in just a second. What do they do in verse 30? And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, "'Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David.'" They do the only thing they can do, which is just cry out and hope that he hears. Lift their voices, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They cry out, and look what they cry out, because this is very important. Do they cry out and ask for money, which is what they've probably been crying out their whole lives? May I please have some money? They're blind beggars on the side of the road. No. Do they cry out and explicitly ask to receive their sight, which is what I, I think we would expect them to do? Heal us, Son of David. Heal us, Jesus. We're blind. Heal us. Is that what they cry out? No, they ask for mercy. Have mercy on us, Son of David. Why? One of the things that Matthew is going to do with these two men in this passage is he's presenting them to us, as we'll see, as model disciples as examples of how disciples, how you and I as disciples of Jesus, ought to behave. And so what we're seeing here is Matthew isn't highlighting their requests. He's highlighting, first of all, their heart posture. He's highlighting their heart posture. They don't say, hey, can you fix our eyes? We heard you do that. They ask for mercy. What's the first thing they're recognizing? He's very high and I am very low. If he were to look upon me in any way, it would be a profound act of mercy. They're recognizing their lowly place in this scene. They're recognizing, to say it in another way, they are not owed anything. Anything they get from Jesus would be a profound act of mercy. They're recognizing they are the ones in great need. So Matthew is presenting them, these model disciples, as demonstrating this posture of humble desperation. Something that Matthew has been preaching at us over and over and over and over and over over again is that disciples of Jesus Christ, their heart posture is blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who know there are no riches here. There's no righteousness here. I need a savior. We've heard it from Jesus' mouth. I did not come for the healthy who think they need no doctor. I did not come for those who believe that they're so righteous and need no savior. Who did I come for? I came for sick sinners. I came for the low. I came for those who know they're low who know, I am poor in spirit, I'm spiritually impoverished, and I need a rich Savior. Matthew has shown us that over and over and over again, and he's showing it to us one more time with these men. So they cry out in humble desperation, and we see a response. We see a response to their desperate cry. And in fact, the first response isn't from Jesus. The first response is from the crowd. Look at verse 31. Verse 31. And the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. Okay, so they cry out in this humble desperation, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd hears them, and what do they say? Be quiet. It's almost the exact same indifferent, ugh, you're gross response we saw when children ran up to Jesus. In fact, it's the same Greek word. What do the disciples do? Rebuke them. Get away from him, unclean kids. That's the crowd's response. Now, notice, again, the crowd loves Jesus. They're very pro-Jesus. They see Jesus. They're on board. They're going with him, right? But what do they think he's going to do? He's going to Jerusalem to overthrow Rome. He's got bigger fish to fry. He doesn't have time for unimportant beggars on the roadside. Be quiet, Stop distracting him from his far more important mission that's going to finally fix my life. That's going to throw off these political shackles we've had for this long. Shut your mouth, blind beggars. Keep being blind beggars and let us pass by. That's the first response that the blind men hear. And how do they respond to the crowd? So now there's opposition. Not only do they have blindness preventing them from getting to Jesus. Now, everyone around them doesn't want them to get to Jesus. They're actively opposing them. They're actively trying to shut down their cries. The only thing they can do, cry out to Jesus. The crowd's trying to stop it. How do the men respond? Verse 31. But they, the blind men, cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew has shown us there's humble desperation. Here's the second thing. There's persistent desperation. Faith, humble desperation. I need mercy from you. And the second thing we see, persistent faith, almost like Jacob wrestling with God. I will not let you go until you bless me. This indifferent crowd will not stop me from getting to him, from getting his ear. We saw something like this with a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. She's unclean, she can't go, Jesus is surrounded by a crowd, but she must get to him and touch the fringe of his garment. There's this desperate persistence of faith. They're poor in spirit, they need him, they must have him and nothing will prevent him prevent them from getting to him. And then finally, we see the result. What's the result of their humble desperation and their persistent faith? Verse 32. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? There's a lifetime of anticipation in these men. They hear the noise of the crowd rise, they hear Jesus passing by, they cry out, the crowd tries to shut them down, they cry out all the more, and then their cries hit the ears of Jesus, and what does he do? He hits the emergency stop button. The train to Jerusalem stops. He stops, I imagine the massive crowd stops bumping into each other, and he turns, and he speaks back to them. They've been crying out and only hearing the angry annoyance of the crowd, only hearing shut your mouth as a response, and now all of a sudden, the tender words of Jesus hit their ears, what do you want me to do for you? And they say in verse 33, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Can we see? Verse 34, and Jesus in pity touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight and they follow him. They receive their mercy. There's humble desperation for him. There's a persistent faith in him. You want to know, how do I receive mercy? Here it is. Humble desperation and persistent faith. Again, this has been Matthew's consistent message. You want to know who Jesus stops for? It's not the proud It's not those who think, I'm good. It's the rest of the world that's a little crazy. Go work on them. I'll folly. I'm good, though. I'm not really that sick. Certainly not as sick as you know who. That's not who Jesus stops for. It's those who say, I've got nothing to bring but an open hand. That's who Jesus stops for. You want his mercy. You want him to turn and look and speak to you. Go with an open hand and say, I need nothing but you. I need your mercy. Which this, ma- this message of Matthew that we've seen over and over again, think about this, that runs so counter to everything in our flesh. That runs literally opposite of how we believe we ought to behave, right? Especially us Americans, right? What do we, we're American, which means what? We love what we build and we love our rights, Right? We'll start wars over our rights. And we love pulling ourselves by our bootstraps and saying, look what I made. Look at these things I did and look at what I'm owed. We typically read the Bible, read David and Goliath. And who are we in the story of David and Goliath? David, right? And we write great books on here's how you slay your giants, right? It's all about you being the superhero. We're at the center of the stage. God will help some, right? He's the guy you pray to. Right, He gives you the great power to go do it, but you're the one doing it, right? You want God to look on you in favor? You want God to love you? You want God to like you? You want God to be proud of you? Go work hard. Go earn it. Go pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Or maybe even worse, you want God to go into your debt? Go work really hard. You want God to owe you? God, I did all these great things for you. You're welcome. Now, where's my blessing? Which no one in this room would ever say that out loud, but how do you react when things go bad? Do you say, I've given faithfully to the church and attended church faithfully, and I've, you know, cared for people, and so why am I getting nothing but bad stuff, God? Why are all these bad things happening to me? Aren't there worse people who rebel against you, way more than I do? I get up and I pray. I get up and I read my Bible. What gives? What are you saying in that moment? You owe me. You owe me. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I've sacrificed for you. Don't you owe me better than this? See it. Humble desperation is the one who draws the eyes of Jesus, runs completely counter To how we naturally think. Isn't it incredible who the Bible actually wants you to identify with? In the story of David and Goliath, you know who the Bible says you are? Israel, peeing its pants every time Goliath comes out and taunts. Who is Matthew telling you? Here's who you are you're the leper. You're the sinner. Be the sinner. Be the one that's poor in spirit. Be the meek. Don't be the one who gets up and beats their chest. They're the ones who inherit the earth. There's the one who inherits the kingdom of heaven. Be the weak, blind person. That's who the scriptures are always telling you to identify with because those people know I'm not David, but I need David. Or I need the son of David to come kill Goliath for me, to come deliver me. That's the message of Matthew. That's how disciples draw his attention, draw his favor and delight and his salvation and his mercy. I have nothing to bring you other than empty hands. And so, do you see yourself in these blind men, these model disciples? Do you have this sort of humble desperation for him. I cannot live if you don't show up. I cannot live if you don't show me mercy or are you good and he can kind of make up the gap in tough times. Is he often an afterthought in your day when you're reminded, oh, right, Jesus exists and he's in control of the universe. Do you have this mark on your soul? I have no righteousness of my own but I do have a merciful Savior who gives me his righteousness. Is there a humble desperation for him? And is there this persistent faith? When opposition in your life creeps in, do you just look somewhere else? When you pray once and you don't get the answer, you say, I guess prayer doesn't work. Try something else. I'll work really hard or something like that. Or perhaps more familiar to us, when you see kind of the world going crazy, when you have the news on and you just see Bad news happening all the time. Do you instantly forget that God is on the throne and sovereign over all things and is going to work out everything for your good? And all of a sudden your hope withers away and you don't have peace anymore. You're just as anxious as our world as we drink in nothing but bad news. And so you have no uh, option other than to get angry and think, what do we do? we got to eliminate the the dumb people who are doing this on the news, right? Do Do you do that game? Or as bad news from our world comes in, do you say, "Hey, I was promised this by my Savior. The world's going to hate us, but take heart. I've overcome the world. And no matter how dark it gets, I have persistent faith in my good shepherd, that he's with me in the valley. And that, though I don't know how, somehow he's going to work all this out. Do you have that persistent faith? Do you have the persistent faith to even pray for your weak faith? Even pray those wonderful prayers of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's so what Matthew is showing us, a humble desperation and a persistent faith. Here's the, the tragedy of believing you're owed something from God isn't just that it's silly and it's going to just actually blind you for a long time and keep you from walking in repentance. The actual tragedy is you'll never see the depths of his love or the beauty of his mercy when you think you're owed And the wonderful thing about actually crying out, I am poor in spirit, is you see the riches that you're being given. As your empty hand goes out, you see the infinite riches that this wonderful Savior puts in your hand. What happens to these blind men? as they confess their poverty, they begin to dance, right? We don't know that in the story, but these blind men get up and they, just, they don't say, thanks, I'll go about my day. They follow him. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, blessed are the poor in spirit. What irony. The more depths of your emptiness that you see, the greater his love goes. So that's the first thing Matthew is saying, behold, behold. Put your eyes on models of discipleship, humble desperation, persistent faith. That's how you receive mercy. But that's not all Matthew wants us to see. That's the first thing Matthew wants us to see. But Matthew also wants you to see the one who is giving them mercy. Okay, so let's look at the story again. Let's move the spotlight onto King Jesus, the one who gives mercy. How do they address Jesus? We heard it, but we haven't talked about it yet. What do they call him? Son of David, that's right, mumblers, son of David, right? That's my fault. I never ask you guys and you're like, he's waiting long enough. Do I say something out loud? He's going to mock me if I mumble, just either confidently or silence. And I'll, 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 I'll handle it from there. Okay, so Jesus has got tons of titles that people are calling him. They call him teacher, they call him rabbi, they call him Messiah, they call him Christ, they call him son of God, son of man. People are constantly going to him and calling him something. And these men call him son of David, a very specific title, Son of David. It's actually something that Matthew, the author, wanted us to see in the first verse of his gospel. We saw this, Matthew 1, verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Very important title. Why? Because this this idea, the Son of David, is drawing on maybe the, the biggest promise in the Old Testament. David, actual David, King David, the shepherd in the field who does slay Goliath, the man after God's own heart, loves the Lord with his heart. He he goes and fights for him, and when he subdues all of his enemies, he recognizes, I live in a palace, and God lives in a tent, the tabernacle, and he wants to build the temple for God. He wants a big, glorious temple. House, temple for the presence of God to dwell in. And God blesses him and gives him what's known as the Davidic covenant. God comes to him and says, you want to build me a house? We actually looked at this, uh, I believe, over Advent. You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house, a lineage. One of your sons is going to sit on the throne and he will never come off it. He will sit on the throne forever forever. And the rest of the Old Testament develops this promise that a king will come, a son of David will come, and in his reign, it will be eternal. He will reign perfectly, unlike any of these poor kings that we're seeing just wreck the nation. He'll reign in perfect justice and in perfect peace. And when he reigns over Israel, in fact, there'll be a strange wolf will lie down with the lamb. All of a sudden, all chaos, even amongst animals, will fade away, and perhaps for these blind men, what they're thinking about is they cry out. Another thing that we see in Isaiah is when he reigns, when the son of David reigns, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And so this is the identity of Jesus that Matthew is highlighting here. He isn't just highlighting that he's a healer, although he heals in this passage, or even that he's a teacher, or even that he's the Messiah. Matthew's pointing our eyes to he is the promised King. He's no longer a shadow of the things to come. The king, the king, is here. The king of kings, we will later call him, is here. And in fact, it's the king of kings that's here. And the king of kings is on what? He's on the mission of missions. He's going to the cross, he's going to Jerusalem. Now, let me ask you what would you expect this king to do in this moment? It's the king of kings, and he's going to the cross. He's going to the history-shaping event that we've been waiting for since the third chapter of the scriptures, and he's almost there. What would you expect him to do with these blind men? And again, recognize Jesus doesn't heal every sick person in Jerusalem, in Israel. It wouldn't be inherently wrong for Jesus to keep walking, Every parent in this room knows there's moments where your children want to play with you, but you've got to do something else more important. You've got to pay bills, or you've got to, I don't know, adult stuff. And you just got to say, hey, bud, I'm sorry. Maybe tomorrow, you just got to let them know. They don't understand it, but you know those moments. Those aren't wrong. You play with your kid every time they ask. You probably get fired, right? That's not inherently wrong. So wouldn't we almost expect? I mean, Jesus is almost there. He's healed a lot of people. right? We've seen that this is what happens when the kingdom comes to earth. Is, would we expect him to... Move by? What does he do? What happens when the King of Kings hears the cries of the overlooked and of the forgotten nobodies on the side of the street? He hits the emergency stop button. He stops. And in fact, Matthew draws this out. The word there for he stops is this idea of he halted his progress. Matthew's intentionally showing. He's not just stopping in this one scene. He's stopping the progress of the gospel of Matthew that's been working its way towards Jerusalem so that he can turn and heal. So that he can turn to the overlooked. Why? Because this king of kings is a merciful king who sees the unseen. This king, this promised king, is a merciful king who sees the unseen. He's walking in total contrast to the crowd. The crowd who thinks, sure, you heal people, but these dudes aren't worth it. You got bigger fish to fry. And Jesus, on the other hand, stops everything to show these men mercy. If you were to see someone on the street bringing someone who's homeless food, you'd probably think, that's very kind and if you were to see a celebrity with no cameras around bringing someone food, you'd probably think, whoa, Brad Pitt's way nicer than I thought. If you were to see the president with no cameras around, again, it's not a photo op, just going out of their way to bring food to someone who's homeless, you'd probably think, you might be speechless. You might think, what's going on here? This, is just, this doesn't happen. Why? Because you, you would think high status doesn't really associate itself with the lowly. And yet, over and over and over again, the God of the Bible does just that. One of the things I love about the Psalms is they paint a picture of the high, exalted, infinite God who cares about the sojourner, who watches over the widow. Look at Psalm 146. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who who executes justice for the oppressed, and who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless by the way, but the way of the wicked he will bring to ruin. You see that the maker of heaven and earth who made the vast sea and everything that is in them. What does he do? He cares about the widow. He cares about the fatherless. He cares about the sojourner with no home. That's the God of the Bible and that's the merciful king of kings we see in this passage. He is the king on the mission of missions and he cares about these overlooked, unimportant two blind men. He will give his life as a ransom for many. We saw that last week. We'll see that when he makes it to Jerusalem and goes to the cross. But he also gives his life for the needy few. That's what Matthew is showing you, this high king stooping low. One more thing he shows you is, gives you a peek, as he often does, a peek into the heart of Jesus. Verse 34, as these men call out to him and Jesus stops and turns and Asks, what would you have me do for you? Jesus says this. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. Now, pity in in our, our usage usually means like you're looking down on others, like, I know I'm better than you. I will stop my very important day to care for you. Right? That's not at all what uh, Matthew is meaning here. Pity here means compassion. It's the same word we see in the, in the parable of the prodigal son as the son who squandered the father's wealth and then is on his way home, just wanting to be one of the father's servants. When the father sees him coming on the roadside in Luke 15, he arose and came to his father, the son, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion. Same Greek word. Felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. It's just this this idea of exploding compassion in someone's heart. And when Jesus' eyes turn to these overlooked men, that's what explodes in his heart. This isn't a begrudging, quick, you know, I'll, I'll do it quickly, and I gotta get to more important stuff, sort of healing. Rather, as the crowd is pushing Jesus in one way, we've got big values, political victory, worldly gain getting these oppressors off our back, Rome. Jesus shows that he, the true king, and his kingdom have radically different values. We actually saw it last week. You want to be great? Become a servant. You want a high place in my kingdom? Become a slave and give your life for others. He said it last week. He's showing it this week. These are the values of the kingdom, and this is who this king is. So Matthew's showing us blind men, models of discipleship. That's how we receive mercy. And now he wants you to see, this is who you're a disciple of. This is the one you follow, this merciful king, the one who gives mercy. Do you know this merciful king? Is this merciful king, this one from God's word, the one that you're following, Are you following this idea of him that's going to bring you great worldly victory? That's going to bring you great political gain? That's going to help you have your best life now? Or are you following this king? This merciful, merciful king who stops and sees the forgotten? One more thing Matthew's going to show us. How to receive mercy, who gives mercy. Last thing is how do we respond? Once we've received mercy from him, how do we respond? We see it in verse 34, very quick, right at the end. Jesus had pity on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they recover their sight and followed him. They recover their sight and they follow him. They receive the mercy they ask for and they follow him. Notice they don't say, I've got my sight, and then they go back to making a living or or doing all the things that they had hoped they would do if they were able to see. They don't do that. They don't recover their sight and then go tell a bunch of people about how great Jesus is. We've seen that reaction in the Gospels. It's not what they do. They recover their sight and they do what all disciples in Matthew do. They follow him. Not to get more things from him. They've already received what they've asked for. They're following him. Why? To have him. They want Him, So, do you see what's happened? Jesus has, in a sense, healed two sets of eyes. As their physical eyes are opened, as they say, Lord, can we see? He says, yes. Their physical eyes are opened and their spiritual eyes are opened too. As they begin to see with their eyes of sight, their eyes of faith begin to see as well. And they respond the only way you can respond when the eyes of your heart are opened They follow him. So Matthew is showing us, here's the final piece of model disciples, humble desperation, persistent faith, and then a proper response, follow him. Follow him when he has opened your eyes. And as he's showing us this, he's inviting us into the story, if you will. The reality of your story and my story is everyone in this room Is born blind spiritually, spiritually impoverished. We might lie to ourselves and say that we're awesome and all those sorts of things, but it's a ridiculous lie we've convinced ourselves of. Everyone in this room is born blind. And if you're a Christian, it's because the merciful King, when he was passing you by, stopped and turned. And his sweet, compassionate gaze settled on you. And he showed you mercy. And so now, respond in the only way that you can. Follow him. And notice, following Jesus means walking as he walked. Following Jesus means you live out of the mercy you've received We've seen Jesus over the past couple weeks as he's teaching his disciples, what does it mean to follow me? We forgive others why we've been forgiven much. And here we see you show mercy to others. You're a servant to others. You're a slave to others. Why? You have received great mercy from a merciful king. We walk as he walked. We live a lifetime of servanthood bearing one another's burdens, giving our lives for others, presenting our bodies as what? As living sacrifices, especially for the overlooked, especially for those who draw his gaze. Why? Because that is the values of the kingdom that we've been brought into that runs so counter to our world. When he opens their eyes, all of a sudden they realize he is the purpose of their life. I imagine they spent their lifetime planning, what will I do? What would I do if I had my sight, even to daydream, and all of a sudden they have it for the first time and all those plans fade away and they follow him. He becomes their purpose, his glory, his journey, his name being made great. May we have their heart posture and have their proper response. You have been shown mercy by a king who sees you even when you think you're unseen, even when the world might tell you you're unseen, and he's opened your eyes, and he's drawing you, follow me and walk as I walk. May we answer his call. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as your rich gospel goes forth in our hearts that it would bear much fruit, Lord, that I pray that in an almost miraculous way, a way that no man could do, no message could do, I pray for those who are downtrodden, who, who do feel just the overwhelming force of their unimportance in a downcast listening to the enemy way, in a self-condemnation, not good way, that their eyes would see the merciful King Jesus gazing at them, and they would see the wondrous gospel that is offered to them in Him, and that their hearts would sing like these blind men sing. And I pray for those of us who walk in pride, who, whether we know it or not, are just thinking, I'm good, I I, I really am, I mean, I'm, I'm decent, I mean, yeah, sure, I'm a sinner, blah, 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 that you would just level us, that you would show us the depths of our own poverty in a way that doesn't lead into morbid introspection, but rather leads to this desperate cry of, Lord, show me mercy. And I pray most of all, Lord, that wherever we're at in this room, even if there's people, again, who who don't trust in Jesus, that the result of your Spirit's movement would be the joy of the last two words of this passage, that we would follow him. Follow him on the road of sacrifice. Follow him on the road of servanthood because in that sort of death we find wonderful, eternal, everlasting life in him. Only you can do that. And so we ask you by your Spirit's power to do that in our hearts, Lord. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.